Thank you for joining us for this next episode of Jacob's If When podcast series. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode, our topic of discussion was biomimicry, which is the science of using naturally and biologically occurring processes and organisms as paradigms for the design and manufacture of a variety of materials, products, and built environment structures. To dive into this topic further, I spoke with Nicole Hagerman-Miller, the Managing Director of Biomimicry 3.8, the world's leading bio-inspired consultancy, as well as Monty Wilson, Jacob's Vice President, Global Market Director for the Built Environment, and Chris Allen, Jacob's Senior Consultant, Sustainability and Resiliency. Now, Nicole, uh, to kind of get us started, uh, I'd like to first ask you to tell us a little bit about what biomimicry is, so we can kind of set the table for today's discussion. Sure. And thank you for, for hosting this today, Paul. It's, it's great to be here and talking with Monty and Chris about this topic. So biomimicry is the, the conscious emulation of nature's genius is kind of how it's formally defined. So what do we mean by that? And ultimately, it's really looking to nature and 3.8 billion years of life on Earth to identify really time-tested strategies to solve today's challenges. And because we're mimicking nature with these time-tested strategies, we're ultimately de-risking the innovation process. Mm -hmm. And we're delivering outcomes, if done accurately, are inherently resilient and regenerative. For example, you've got the darkling beetle, which can get water that they need from dew and ocean fog. They live in the Namibian desert, right? So mm-hmm. they, can, they can get water from using their very own body surface. So researchers are studying these beetles as well as synthetic surfaces inspired by the beetle's body to uncover the role that this, the structure of the beetle's body can play as well as the chemistry and behavior it can play in capturing water from air. Right. Mm -hmm. So these kind of fog nets and things of sort that are really inspired by this incredible phenomenon that happens in nature. And so ultimately, what can we learn from how that beetle captures fog and creates water from air in terms of how we might design cooling systems in our buildings, for example? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, you know, when I first was thinking about biomimicry and kind of looking into this, you know, I was I guess I was originally thinking about things like vehicles and tools and things like that, things that would emulate, you know, a a physical body and that sort of thing. But, you know, then when it was looking further, it's like we're, we're Jacob's exploring this topic in terms of the built environment, right. Which is like large scale architectural projects and things like that. And so it got me really curious to, you know, how are we doing that? And so Monty, you know, what was it about biomimicry that made it a critical component for, for Jacob's vision for the built environment? Yeah, great question. And probably a topic, Paul, that, that I could talk about for, for a long time, you know, mm-hmm. the, this journey in exploring that very question, how does biomimicry influence buildings, architecture, cities, the built environment has been one that we've been on for well over a decade now. And Nicole and Janine Benyus, the founder of B38, and Chris and I started that conversation to really look, as Nicole just said, the, how do we emulate nature's genius, not just around the design of a thing mm-hmm. or a process that we see in nature every day, but how do we take that genius and apply it to this conversation around holistic sustainability, triple bottom line based sustainability. So we talk about 
building performance and building systems and building skins, but then we zoom out and have to think about the interconnectedness of transportation systems and distribution of goods and water distribution systems and water recapture. And it's it's all right there. And in, in the, in the notion that biomimicry allows us to, to do two things, really, I guess, is one, that we all have this inherent connection to nature at some level. So we're talking about sustainability beyond just a rating system mm-hmm. or or the notion of doing less harm, which is generally what most sustainability metrics have historically been set up to do. Let's do less harm. Mm-hmm. So looking at nature really allows us to, 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 to drive those, those, those best practices that, as Nicole said, have been proven for such a long time into the design of our buildings and our places. Mm-hmm. And, and to take that notion of sustainability beyond just a metric, beyond a rating system, and to truly be an integrated approach and a systematic approach to sustainability. So that's a part of why it's so exciting from the built environment perspective. But I'm also, and maybe we can talk about this a little later, mm-hmm. I'm convinced that biomimicry is going to have a big impact on Jacobs as an entire enterprise. So mm-hmm. that's even the bigger, potentially the bigger story. Hmm. Well, and I think it's fascinating because you think about like how most uh, urban centers and stuff have evolved over time, right? Uh, you know, it's a lot of times it's based off of plans that have been laid down for centuries, particularly like, you know, in say like Europe or whatnot. And so they weren't necessarily thinking about what are the best practices that are going to mesh with the delicate balance of the environment and with life. And so now we're starting to think that way. And, you know, you're, you're building, you're building things, not just for today, but for the long haul, you know, they're going to carry on for, for years and years. So Chris, to bring you into this, um, you know, and to give our listeners some context on biomimicry and action uh, in the built environment space, uh, I'd like to ask you about some of the Jacobs projects where biomimicry has played a role. And one of these examples that was shared with me was for a client in the city of Safi, Morocco. I hope I, I said that right. How did Jacobs leverage biomimicry to enhance how the client viewed their project from a sustainability and local natural history perspective? Thanks, Paul. It's a really fascinating kind of case study of applying biomimicry in Morocco. Mm-hmm. In this case, the client is a, a big industrial producer of phosphorus products. And as you know, Morocco is one of the uh, leading global producers of phosphate products. And so they had an older older industrial plant that was doing uh, phosphate beneficiation right on the coast. And the plant had gotten quite old and become quite inefficient. They had quite a uh, growing pollution problem associated with that old plant. And so when they called in Jacobs to think about master planting the new plant, we started looking at the, at the site and, and very large scale site right on the coast of Morocco mm-hmm. and trying to help them solve you know, pollution problems, local environmental impact problems. So one of the first things we wanted to know, well, what's, what's inherently on that site? What's going on, on the site, the proposed site? What's happening there ecologically, environmentally, and what do we need to know? So we called in Biomimicry 3.8 and they came in and did their study called The Nature of Place, which really looks at the natural history, look at, looks at the ecological dynamics of that place, mm-hmm. and then translates that biology and ecological knowledge to designers. And that's that's really the where a lot of the value is created here, because a lot of times designers don't typically have a background in ecology and environmental and from a design perspective. Mm-hmm. So B3H nature of place process goes to that site, extracts all the ecological wisdom and, and the value and says, hey, designers, 
if you want to design something that's really fit to this place and that can perform well here over time, these are the things that you need to be looking at. Hmm. Here's how the desert operates. Here's how the, here's how the coastal dynamics operate. Here's how the organisms that have been here for hmm. thousands and thousands of years operate. And we should be looking at these types of design principles when we're thinking about master planning this place. So it kind of opens up not only the design team, but also the client to a new way of thinking about that site. And, mm -hmm. and it's also called the genius of place. What's happening here for thousands of years that we need to look at and understand and evaluate before we start designing? Because there's, there's just, again, there's just a lot of wisdom and value there that can be extracted. Hmm. And it's interesting. And, you know, it's a little outside the scope of today's discussion, but I, I can't help but think that like the work that y'all are doing and th this kind of work and biomimicry and built environment is going to influence like how future generations of architects and engineers and people who, who plan and build built environments uh, approach these, you know, ask these questions and then look for answers. So now Monty, there was another Jacobs project, uh, the Red Sea Reserve, which was a competition concept master plan submittal for a special economic zone in Saudi Arabia. I'm going to ask you and Nicole both to weigh in on this a little bit, but starting with Monty, I understand it was a, a massive project and that there are some terrific scalability opportunities that biomimicry can provide for resilient solutions. So starting with you, Monty, could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, it was a, a fascinating, a fascinating journey. And as you, as you said, Paul, the, the size of the project from a land area perspective, was enormous. There mm. was on the Red Sea coast, um, sort of in northwest Saudi Arabia, uh, north of, of Jeddah, and the land area is roughly the size of Norway. It included mm. an active volcano and lots of other uh, interesting uh, ecological features, natural features down to the coast, mm. and then a an island archipelago that's roughly the size of the U.S. Virgin Islands. So 63 or something like that in terms of numbers of actual pristine coral reefs and the number of islands in this island archipelago. And the idea was to master plan this as a new global tourism destination. Mm. And the client, who was the public investment fund in Saudi, really put a brief out there that said, think bold, think big, think, think unlike anything else that exists anywhere in the world. And we want this to be the model and example of sustainability. So it became an easy e easy call to make for us to reach out to Nicole and team and say, look, this is the, what they're framing. Our idea is to go big here and really push the envelope for the mm -hmm. client, but also for ourselves. And that's that's really what we did to answer some of these tough questions. How do you develop a world leading resort in pristine Red Sea coral reefs, one of the last pristine coral reefs truly in the world? Not to mention all of the land-based development when you think about waste from resorts, moving people and goods and all of that back and forth to islands. How do you deal with transportation and that carbon footprint? So we really, we could we could have a podcast on, on its own just talking about the amazing ideas that, that Nicole and Janine and that team brought to Jacobs. And I think the partnership was just yet another example of what really is possible. Mm. And then Nicole, can you uh, weigh in? on the scalability aspects of biomimicry because i you know i guess like not every project of course is going to be like this this huge you know this huge endeavor sure. and some are going to be smaller but what kind of scalability aspects could we see here yeah one of the things i love most about biomimicry is one it can apply to any challenge mm -hmm. um and 
is industry agnostic, right? So whether you're at the front end of innovation, just thinking about it, or you're midway through or in a tailpipe solution, right? You can start to use it in a way to just kind of open that solution space. So to your question, the scalability, one thing that, when, particularly when we're talking about it at the built environment, mm-hmm. one thing that we often talk about is that we can look at it from the building, you know, the exterior, the interior, the operations of the building, and really make an impact for applying that thinking to the to the site itself, which is fantastic in terms of creating a site that is moving towards regenerative performance. However, the I think what's most exciting is that the ability to demonstrate this is what this site itself can do. But if you get your neighbor involved, if you get, you know, other corporations and have kind of closed loop systems and, and, you know, industrial symbiosis and you get the city involved and you get, you know, this kind of expansiveness. And it, it, it is quite infectious, I will say, in that once you start thinking this way, it's kind of like that moment where you're like, it's so obvious, you know, like, why didn't we think of it like this before? And so as you start kind of exposing people to these ideas and this concepts, it's really quite uh, attractive to start to think this way. And the benefits become much more powerful at that scale, at that district scale, at that community scale. And so that's where there's real opportunity in kind of demonstrating what's possible and really making these kind of moves towards, towards regenerative. And I think to the project that Chris was talking about earlier, you know, one thing that we've found that plays into the scalability is that and Monty hit on this a little bit, like no one like hates nature, right? Like everyone pretty much has a positive association with nature, typically through childhood or something, right? So there's a, there's an, a, an emotional positive connection to it. So when you can bring that into the design process to mm-hmm. say, we are emulating this local species because this is what it does to this environment. This is how it benefits that environment. It actually becomes a, an engagement tool and mm-hmm. a, a tool that can really democratize a conversation, particularly in development, which can be quite emotional in terms of land use, design, all of these pieces. And so by mm-hmm. bringing the biology into it, mm-hmm. you immediately kind of democratize and remove the emotion from you know, a human-centered space into one that is, oh, wow, I can see how you know, this jackrabbit does countercurrent heat exchange, and this is a local species. And oh, wouldn't it be great if we emulated that in our mm-hmm. in our heating and cooling systems here in this building, right? So it's a really, so there's multiple points in which it becomes really powerful tool in the design conversation in, in the front end. And then as it starts to become applied and implemented, and that story is told in terms of the impact, how it then then scales out to outside the four walls of the building and in the community level as well. Mm. And I could see how, like, I guess the enthusiasm can be infectious. And then that's where there's really a drive to try to find real solutions. Um, And it's, I I, kind of like what you're saying, it's not really that there's a vested interest in doing it a, a certain way because this is how our organization does it, but rather it's, it's that, consensual respect that people would have for a natural process or the beauty therein. And it's like, Oh, let's emulate that. That's, that's really cool how that works, you know? And then it kind of takes, like you said, you know, take some of the emotion out of it or that 
self-interest, right? And it and becomes more yeah. about solving what's the best possible solution. I'll throw in another angle here too, Paul, is in that, um, you know, innovation requires us to think differently, right? And so mm-hmm. by approaching these problems with a biomimicry lens, you begin to, to uh, envision or conceptualize the problem in a completely different light. Mm-hmm. And just by taking teams off of their typical track of doing things and saying, hey, there's another way to think about this problem, this opportunity, and look at it through this lens. Mm-hmm. One, it's, it changes the vantage point, which kind of creates the open space for innovation. And then two, it's just a huge creativity engine because all these ideas for potential solutions that were not there before suddenly are on the table and people get excited about that and mm-hmm. thinking differently and, and um, the cross-disciplinary collaboration when you have landscape architects and engineers talking to biologists, talking to community engagement people, the mm-hmm. the uh, the the velocity of ideas just goes through the roof and it's, hmm. it's pretty exciting. So my next question, you know, and this is kind of, this is very much related and we'll kind of step back for a moment because we're right now we're talking about like when organizations kind of know about the beauty and the benefits of biomimicry and they're kind of, they're all in. Right. So, but Chris, let's start with you. And then Nicole, I'll ask you to also, you know, kind of weigh in on this, but Let's talk about the role biomimicry plays and how corporations make decisions about their assets and the future of the business. You know, what kind of has led them to embrace biomimicry to begin with? And how do you see them reacting to the solutions? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's still relatively new to most corporations, but there's a handful of companies that have really begun to embrace it. And Mm -hmm. You know, from my perspective, there are the the leading companies that are looking for the the, the front end of innovation when it comes to sustainability. And, and to Monty's point, mm-hmm. some companies are ready to get into that space of, of going beyond doing less bad and getting into real positive impacts, really making uh, tangible, uh, verifiable, uh, regenerative impacts for their employees, for their communities, for their customers. Mm-hmm. I think it's those communities that are looking to buy a mimicry and, and other modalities to say, you know, we can change the the framing of sustainability from less bad to positive impact. And that's really been the brilliance of B through A to, to say, uh, we can all not just say uh, positive, we can begin to measure it and verify it. And we can, we have science to back that. And I think the companies that are ready for that kind of conversation, ready to implement are the ones that that B through A and, and Jacobs are working with together to kind of mm. say, well, this is this is how we would implement it. And I think the journey really started with the pioneering company Interface, and I'll, I'll invite Nicole to kind of talk about that and mm-hmm. maybe as a as a beginning case study, and then maybe we could talk about Ford a little bit, Nicole. Well, I think first to your direct question, Paul, I think one reason companies really embrace this is that first and foremost, it's science based, mm-hmm. right? We're looking to biology. We're we're inspired by that. We're creating strategies that are that are science-based. So I think that resonates with a lot, particularly those in the engineering space, because it does have that grounding. And then I think the, to Chris's point, because we're bringing an entire new set of strategies, an entire new way of thinking to the table, I think what's happening now, particularly in corporate environments, is that companies recognize, as Chris said, they can no longer do less bad, right? Like off the table, like you have to be thinking in, in that space of regenerative and positive mm-hmm. and understanding the value of nature, right? That, that so much of the revenue that is generated is contingent upon 
all of Earth's systems working well, mm-hmm. right? And so that natural capital and, and the stranded assets that would exist if we didn't actually design in a regenerative way. Mm-hmm. So I think holistically, companies are starting to get that, right? That, oh, we have to act in a regenerative way if we want to survive as a business, right? Like Ray Anderson of Interface said it quite well, like show me the business model of not being sustainable, right? You're eventually going to not succeed, right? If you're not acting in this regenerative way. And I think we're coming to the point now where there's more science, there's more information, Mm -hmm. there's more data about the value that nature plays in our businesses directly to the revenue of our businesses. So it's in our best interest to protect that, to create life-friendly design, right? So I think that's, it's much more of a business conversation that we can, or there's much more data that we can bring to having like a very financial conversation around why this is important and not Mm -hmm. just like a cool, you know, thing to do or, you know, something that's kind of like a fun design project, but like, Mm -hmm no, this is actually essential to how we operate our business. For Interface, they've been a longstanding client of biomimicry and they've embedded biomimicry in their mm-hmm. in their thinking. And we have this saying, you know, what would nature do, right? So at every kind of challenged, you know, junction in, um, in, in, the, in the company, right? It's like, okay, well, what would nature do here, right? That's kind of embedded in their, in their ethos. And so for for them, when they were reaching their 2020 sustainability goals, mm-hmm. about five years prior to that, we were sitting around a table and, and asking the question of what's next. And the question became of, well, we're reaching our carbon goals, we're reaching our waste goals, we've kind of come to net zero, mm-hmm. right? And what's beyond zero? Because one, and Janine Benya says this really well, like there's nothing super inspiring about reaching zero. Right? It's like, it's like this <laughs> going to the bottom, right? So what, what's beyond that? And that's really kind of what started this conversation of what does it look like to, to act in a way that is positive? How do we set positive goals? Mm-hmm. And there was kind of the, at about that time, 2015, there was this conversation of, what does net positive look like? You know, there was a, just starting to surface as that conversation. And mm-hmm. for us, it really became about, well, how do you define positive? And Janine, our founder, had this really kind of aha moment where she was flying over our community as she was returning back home. And she saw the forest and the city as kind of two separate things, you know, like mm-hmm. you could see the clear boundary. Mm-hmm. And it became this conversation of, well, what if the forest and the city were functionally indistinguishable? And what we mean by that is, what if the city was performing at the same rate that the forest next door in terms of the amount of carbon that was being sequestered, the amount of air that was being filtered, the amount of soil that was being generated, the amount of biodiversity that was be creating, right? Like what if our city did this in the same way that the forest next door? And what we've kind of evolved and developed from that is we can actually quantify how our forests are performing in that same way. We can measure the carbon, we can measure the soil, we can measure the biodiversity. So what if that becomes our definition of positive? And that becomes a standard of which we design to. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pilot project with Interface called Factory as a Forest, that the factories function like the forest next door. And that was our first time in really applying this methodology of creating performance standards on par with the ecosystem next door creating design interventions 
that helped us move towards that. And from that pilot, you know, they interface is just an incredible thought leader who's willing to kind of put their neck out there to try things. And so we piloted this and then we talked about it and we said, you know, this is what we've learned. This is what we found. And Mm -hmm. out of that, we had the opportunity to kind of share that example at sustainable brands and Ford heard our presentation and was really interested to learn more and to see how they could apply that to their manufacturing Mm -hmm. facilities. And so that embarked a two-year conversation uh, Mm -hmm. with Ford around that. And uh, simultaneously, Mm -hmm. you know, Jacobs has this uh, incredible partnership with Ford as well. And so as we started talking with their sustainability teams Mm -hmm. around the work that we are doing, the value for us, like we can bring that thinking and the methodology, but what Jacobs brings to the table is the tools for design and implementation. Mm -hmm. And so for us collectively as a team to say to Ford, here's this thinking, here's this framework, here's this kind of performance bar that we're aiming towards. Here's the biology that can help us solve for it. Mm -hmm. And then Jacobs with the kind of design team and the engineering and operations and implementation, we could really go to Ford kind of with a all-star team, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. to say like, you know, from end to end, this is what it looks like to implement. And so we've really been piloting with Ford over the last year, applying this thinking to four different sites and really have a great partner with, with Ford and kind of thinking through this in real time in terms of what this looks like and how it can be applied. So it's, it's been a really fun journey. I think we're all, you know, we're learning very much as we go. I don't think Mm-hmm. Anyone from B3 or Jacobs would say, you know, here's the magic bullet to solving regenerative, you know, plug and play. But um, just having those partnerships to really kind of explore that thinking and, mm-hmm. and apply the thinking has been uh, pretty exciting, I think, for for our teams. No, I think that's that's fascinating. And, you know, Monty, I, I can't help but think that there is there are organizations, probably quite a few, you know, because as the attention and focus on sustainability and, you know, doing no harm and, you know, doing good, you know, like, I think all the, all of that uh, energy is there, but they, they may not know, like, where do you get started? Like, how do you get down? You know, it's like, okay, we have all these plants or whatever around the world. And how do we, you know, start, how do we change that? But I can't, I can't uh, help but think that they're, they're probably, there's a, a real need out there for people to understand. And, now, part of it too, you know, bio- biomimicry is influencing Jacobs as well and how we do things and how, how we approach and solve problems. Can you share a little bit about, about that approach and where we're seeing those benefits, you know, the most? Yeah, ha- happy to, Paul. I think, you know, you just made a point that I think is really appropriate here because there are multiple ways to introduce this concept into a team, into an organization, right? And, and typically you'll find the designers or those that are leaning into the sustainability uh, sphere, maybe you're the, the ones that are going to get connected first. I've kind of described it before, which is probably not good in the a time of a pandemic because you kind of get a little infected with this thing and you can't help but want to want to know more. And it doesn't, the first time you, you, you get that exposure, you're intrigued, but the second time, mm-hmm. then you're kind of hooked. And then beyond that, you've got to know more and figure out how you can really apply it. And so we, we had our teams that, 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 that both Nicole and Chris are talking about doing cool work mm-hmm. around the world that were really passionate about it. But one of my favorite stories about how this is really taken off within the organization is right as we were going through the integration with uh, Jacobs and the CH2 team, 
Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Regatta's leadership group was meeting and Luis White and the team that was setting up that agenda reached out and said, well, what about Janine Benyus coming to help this team as sort of the keynote guest speaker for this small 30-person leadership meeting? Mm -hmm. We're integrating two organizations. There've got to be some lessons from their work on how organisms combine and come together. And so that was the basis for Janine sitting in front of, you know, Bob and Donald and the, the leadership team mm -hmm. of, of that group to talk about biomimicry, not from the design of a, of a thing or, or a building, but the design of an organization. And it, mm -hmm. and it really cemented within that group, the possibilities then, of course, a year or so later in Vancouver, Janine was the keynote in front of 400 Jacobs leaders, mm -hmm. really expanding on the idea of how biomimicry could could really impact a, a diverse organization like ours. And, and that's what we're finally seeing today with this with this partnership and and, and the work that's going on. We've got training cohorts that met last week that are meeting this week. Mm -hmm. So we're spreading this news, if you will, throughout the organization that can have an impact like I said at the beginning, within the built environment, but in really every aspect of our company, both from an internal and, of course, how we serve our clients and serve our communities. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Chris, do you uh, want to kind of get your insights as well, you know, from like where you're sitting? Like, how are you seeing it playing out, you know, within Jacobs? And what are some of the things you're hearing and seeing from your peers? A lot of excitement, Paul. Um, I've probably done... 10 or 12 internal presentations to different community to communities of practice over the last year, I would say. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and because I'm the liaison with Biomimicry 3.8, I'm kind of called on to, to give the, the uh, elevator speech or the uh, paragraph for the proposal or something like that. And it's really ramping up as, as Biomimicry is kind of becoming uh, known within the company. It's, it's spreading and people are excited about it, and especially young folks within, within Jacobs. Um, mm -hmm beginning of their career, I just find it so fascinating and exciting. And, and for me, it's a delight to be able to share this with, with people within Jacobs because I'm so passionate about it. And when I see other people get excited about it, we get excited together and the conversations just take off. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, it's, it's going really well. And, and as Monty mentioned, we have a cohort of 16 folks that are now going through a training. We had our, our first session. Mm -hmm. And this is really, they're, they're kind of chosen within the company to be what we're calling the communicators, catalysts, and connectors within the organization to kind of help bring the ethos, the, the different aspects of biomimicry into the company mm -hmm. so they can kind of infuse both the culture and then also we'll be able to deliver it efficiently to, you know, to our clients on projects. So uh, I think it's going really well. I'm, I'm super excited about it. And I, I really appreciate you putting together this podcast so that more people in the company can learn about it too. Uh, well, yeah, I'm glad to do it. And it, a team of folks that I uh, I get to work with, and you know, they actually had approached me and said, "Hey, what do you think about biomimicry as a topic?" And I said, "Love it. it. It looks really interesting, and and really fascinated to learn more." Nicole, let me ask you, just kind of as our our close, you know, on on this topic, you know, so you know, as somebody outside of Jacobs, right? You you work with other companies to try to help them embrace the uh the biomimicry um ethos you know as, as chris has said and what are you seeing like what are some of the lessons learned in your experience partnering with jacobs you know what's jacobs doing that you see that you know other organizations could learn from you know and um you know, what are those lessons that uh you think are really relevant in this discussion one thing that's been really 
fun to watch as, as Monty alluded to is that it's not something that is looked at as a quick win for a design. Mm -hmm. It's something that is really taken holistically across the application level at the, at the leadership level. Mm -hmm. And I think it one thing that's really telling we had as, as Chris and Monty both alluded to this training earlier, um, our first session was, was last week. And when we talk about biomimicry, we talk about kind of, you know, how, how B3.8 does biomimicry is that there's really three elements. There's the emulate, which is, you know, copying a design strategy, you know, like the, the, the beetle example that I gave earlier, right? Like, right. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's emulating what you learn from the beetle into an actual design, mm -hmm. but then there's the ethos, right? We're doing this because creating life-friendly design is the right thing to do, right? It's, it's how we leave our planet better than, than, than how we arrived. And third is, is the reconnect, right? Like you have a, you have a passion to kind of reconnect with nature and, and that's, and that's your inspiration, right? So that's kind of how we, call the three doors of biomimicry, right? You can enter through one of those doors. Mm -hmm. And what was really kind of exciting to see in our first workshop, we asked that question of what door do you think Jacobs is entering through? Mm -hmm. And you would think that, you know, 80% if more would say emulate, right? We're just trying to copy the strategies from nature to create better design solutions for our clients. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it, it was... I think it was almost like 40% of the people chose that Jacob's door was the ethos hmm. that we're doing this work because it's the right strategy. It's the right thing to do from hmm. a, from a kind of ethics and ethos perspective. And I think that's really telling in terms of what the leadership at Jacob's is doing hmm. around the, the plan beyond strategy and really getting this embedded into the sustainability strategy of Jacobs and thinking holistically, thinking systemically about the role that Jacobs plays in, in the future of design, the future of, of the company. So from an outside looking in, I think to see that answer within this kind of even sample group be as, as high as it is, and to see that the interest is beyond just a single project or a single kind of quick win really demonstrates, I think, from the top leadership that this is something that is taken seriously at its most kind of holistic level, which is where it's kind of most powerful. Mm. No, it is fascinating because it, it really will infuse like the forward direction of how the company tackles uh, challenges and, uh, you know, underpins that, you know, that approach for innovative solutions, but that are also in harmony with the natural environment, you know, and, and so uh, it is kind of inspirational to see that at play. So, well, Monty, Nicole, and Chris, I want to thank all of y'all for a fascinating discussion today. I, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot to learn about biomimicry and it's really fascinating to learn how this is influencing how we uh, we solve some of the world's you know biggest challenges and and kind of the imprint that we leave on our environment. So I want to thank all three of you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That's welcome. Thanks for having us.